Good morning, everybody. It's good to be back with you this morning to dig into God's Word. It's nice to have a break from preaching, but I'm always excited to come back and continue to study that started exegetically years ago. I don't even... 2013, maybe? I think this is message 149. And uh, all these messages are available online if you want to go back and uh, listen to some of our teaching. I probably visited every single book of the Bible at, at least twice as we've studied verse by verse the book of Revelation. I'm a student of prophecy. I believe Bible prophecy is important or it wouldn't be there. And the Bible equates prophecy or the spirit of prophecy with the testimony of Jesus Christ. The purpose of prophecy is to point to the Messiah. The purpose of prophecy is to give us hope, distant hope, and particularly dark times. And it's worth studying. I don't believe that Bible prophecy is composed of dark sayings or dark secrets that require a scribe or a, a wise man or a biblical scholar to unfold for your understanding. The Bible was written for the common man. The Bible was written that we might know God. And the Bible means what it says. It doesn't need to be interpreted. Because when the plain sense is common sense, there is no other sense. So I don't like to refer to one's interpretation of Scripture. I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in my interpretation of Scripture. The Bible says that no Scripture is of any private interpretation. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so these things were written to us. We can understand them. They're not dark secrets. And they're worth studying. And so we've been camped out for weeks now between Revelation chapter 20 verse 6 and Revelation 20 verse 7. We're camped out there. And like we've done several times in this study, I've felt it worthwhile to pause and let Scripture interpret Scripture. We've done that with Daniel's 70-week prophecy. We've done that with the person and the work and the spirit of Antichrist. We've done that with the rapture of the church, which is a biblical doctrine, which is Bible, which is true, which is what we believe and teach. That's what we look for every day. This isn't something that just was mentioned once or twice in Paul's letters, but Jesus taught it as did the Old Testament prophets. So there have been times when we've paused to look at biblical doctrines that precede from what John says here in Revelation. And that's what we've been doing here. We've been looking at the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. The millennial reign of our Lord. If you recall here in chapter 20, the Bible mentions specifically a thousand years six times. It says it six times. <clears throat> so a thousand years means a thousand years. If it doesn't, then John 3.16 doesn't mean whosoever. And so there are those out there that teach that there's no such thing as a millennial reign of Christ. All this stuff was fulfilled in 70 A.D. Those that teach such things are not very good students of history and aren't really aware of what took place in 70 A.D. and what took place after to draw such conclusions. But when the Bible says a thousand, it means a thousand. And it doesn't say it once here. It says it six times. And so there is a thousand-year period a period of jubilee, a period of the kingdom that's coming to this present earth 
whereby God will fulfill all the promises that were made to Israel and the church in this present creation, it will be done before God wraps it up and does away with this present creation and brings a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. We've been talking about that. Revelation 20 verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, the resurrection of the body that takes place for the church at the rapture. On such the second death, the lake of fire has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ. Remember the word Christ just means Messiah. It's the Hebrew word Messiah. And shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, at the end of that period, we see that Satan is loosed from his prison. Satan is imprisoned at that time. He's, his ministry of deceiving the nations comes to an end. And yet when he's let loose, we're going to see that man's ready, willing, and able to rebel against the king. But between verse 6 and 7 is an entire thousand-year period. And the Bible has much to say about this period, much to say about what it will involve. And these things are written for us just as they were written for the people to whom the prophets originally penned them. They were written in times when Israel was under God's judgment, when the days were dark, when the people were rebellious, and when there was only a small remnant. And they were written at a time when salvation for Israel wasn't anywhere close in the future. Yet they were given to give the remnant a distant hope. A distant hope that one day it would all be made right. You see, in Christ we have what the world does not have. The world can offer temporary hope. It can offer or claim hope in the near future. Our politicians like to talk about hope when it becomes election time. All of this talk, and it's never fulfilled, and yet the people of America are stupid enough to believe it every two and four years. Stupid enough. We deserve the government we get. We deserve it. Whatever happens in November. But we're above that in Christ because in Christ we have a distant hope. A distant hope that cannot be seen, but it's assured, and biblical prophecy proves it. Time and time again, God has demonstrated that He does what He says He's going to do, exactly like He says He's going to do it. We can trust Him. We have a distant hope. Paul speaks of those who are without God in the world and have no hope. Apart from the Lord, we have no hope. And that's the big problem with the political situation here in our country today. I appreciate the president. I voted for him in 2016. I will never apologize for that. Never. I appreciate the fact that he's not an enemy of the Christian, of Israel, or the church, or the Bible. He frustrates the mess out of me. I do enjoy the tweets. They're entertaining. He's got his share of problems. I appreciate some of the changes that have been made. But when I look at society and I look at even his supporters and the people that claim to be on the right, I have a fear. I have a fear that we're not looking to the right source. I fear people are looking to a man to bring greatness to this country. And that can't happen. 
This country can never, ever, ever be great until, number one, it acknowledges its sin before God. There, the blood of the unborn, the sodomite abomination, the sins of this country, the greed, the pride and the arrogance of our people, the laziness, the lightly esteeming of God's truth, the rejection of the wisdom of our fathers. All of these things are sins in the eyes of God. And until we acknowledge them as a nation, I don't care how strong the economy is. I don't care how good your speeches sound. I don't even care if you attend a pro-life event. Because the reality is, where God is concerned, there's only one answer for abortion in this country, and that's to stop it, to end it. So if you're talking about anything short of that, then you're at enmity with the Lord God. So I remember, I, 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 I like to read, and I don't really have a pattern for how I choose what book I'm going to read. A lot of times I am reading two or three books at the same time. I stay away from fiction. I'd rather learn from history, real events. doesn't mean I don't read fiction, but there's, there's no rhyme or reason or pattern. Sometimes I'll pick up a book I've read before. Sometimes it's spurred by a current event, or maybe I just want to escape everything, and I'll pick up a topic that can allow me to do that. So there's no pattern. And I was a little disappointed last year. I only read 10 books in, in the year 2019 aside from my personal Bible study. And I wanted to do more than that this year. I love to read. And so I've already read uh, three books this year. And uh, I decided to pick up a book the other day. It's a big, thick book written in 1865. If you want good reading, kids, if you want to read sound uh, literature, pick up something written before 1950. Good, strong vocabulary, reasonable thought. Before the American population went insane, completely insane, you can actually read good stuff. But I picked up a book, a big thick book. I don't remember how many pages. I've read it before, and it's called The Life and Campaigns of General Thomas Stonewall Jackson. It was written by a Presbyterian preacher. It was actually published before the end of the Civil War. And uh, it's really interesting read just about the thought processes going on in people's minds in those days. And it really highlights that, that um, what, you, what we've been told, you know, revisionist history has been around a long time. It's not just a recent phenomenon. And what we've been told doesn't reflect the truth. You know, we see people wanting to tear down monuments today and accuse people from different eras and time periods of being evil and racist and all this nonsense with absolutely no knowledge whatsoever about the difficult circumstances that people faced in difficult times. You know, it's been said that only a, a fool judges history, but a wise man will learn from it. So I like to pick up things and read, and I like to read about events and, and, and writings that were contemporaneous with events. And when we look at the division we have in our country today, historically it's very similar to what our country experienced in the 1850s. And a lot that happened in the Civil War era is why we are where we are today in America. You know, prior to the Civil War, the United States was referenced always, the United States are 
Now it's the United States is, and we have an overbearing federal government that wants to take away our freedoms, that wants to tell us what to do, that wants to lie and live by a different standard with no consequences. And we can thank these things going all the way back over 150 years ago. My great-great-great-grandfather was a, was a soldier in the Confederate Army. He was in Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia, the 55th North Carolina Regiment. If you go back and study history, the Battle of Gettysburg, the high watermark of the Confederacy, there was a great charge on the third day of that battle that ultimately failed. It involved 15,000 men that tried to break the Union lines on Cemetery Hill at Gettysburg. If you've ever been there and walked that route, like my daughter and I have, it's very profound and surreal. But the Confederate Army nearly broke the Union line, and it would have changed the entire outcome of the war. And the 55th North Carolina was the regiment that, one of the regiments that made it to the cusp of trees and nearly broke the line. It was the high point of that battle, and it suffered more than 50% casualties. The entire regiment was decimated. My great-great-great-grandfather was in that regiment. However, by divine providence, nowhere can you see divine providence is more than in the study of military history. By divine providence, he was overcome with a deathly stomach illness as the armies marched north to Gettysburg, to Pennsylvania, and he was taken to Richmond to a hospital to recover. And so I wouldn't be here today, probably, most likely if a terrible stomach bug didn't afflict an, a, an ancestor of mine. So the next time you get sick, you never know what God might be doing there. But... You know, my great-great-great-grandfather was a Confederate soldier. I'll never apologize for that. I'll never be ashamed of it. He didn't own slaves, so he wasn't fighting for slavery. He was defending his homeland from an invader. Today, we have an invader. It's our own government. And we don't even have the guts to stand up against it. We are a weak people compared to those that have come before. And we're weak because we've turned away from this. We've turned away from this in such a way that we can't even know right from wrong. We can't even look at history with an honest eye. We believe everything we're told and we're not willing to seek it out for ourselves. That's the exact same problem Israel had in the time when these prophecies about the millennium were written. Uninterested in the truth. Men have always been uninterested in the truth. Nothing ever changes. We can't really know everything that happened in history because we don't have written records and there's holes we have to fill in. However, where those holes exist, we can know what happened because we know human nature and human nature never changes. We can know the future not only because of God's prophecies but because of human nature. Men don't change. Men, if left to themselves, are evil. They're wicked. They're... they're um, self-serving, they're racist, they're religious, all of these things that turn men away from God and turn them against each other. And you'd think that after all of these centuries of men doing it wrong, we could look at it and learn from it. But we don't. They don't even teach history anymore. We ought to be looking at what happened in this nation 150 years ago and learning from it so it doesn't happen again. But the problem is it will happen again. That's why we need the Messiah. That's why we can't get embroiled or enmeshed in these political controversies and think that a political candidate, 
or an election is going to change anything apart from the Messiah. Our hope in it is in his kingdom. And his kingdom is coming. And the Bible reveals details of this kingdom. We've been talking about that. You know, we're kind of in this little seven-part mini-series about the millennium couched within this greater study on Revelation. If you remember, we've talked about how this kingdom is a literal kingdom. It's not a fairy tale in the sky. It's a theocracy. Remember, a theocracy is very different from a democracy. In a theocracy, God elects the leader. Men don't elect him. God elects him. God elects a leader, and that leader is his son, the Messiah. And he reigns through the visible person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not necessarily a good thing that the people elect a leader. In fact, direct democracy that would say one vote, one man, the popular vote ought to be the leader of this country. Our founding fathers said that that was evil and mischievous and wicked. Because that means that the leadership of a nation can turn on the dime of a mob. Of a people, a mob of people so easily turned to unrighteousness. You know, back in the day to have a vote, you had to own property. Well, you think, oh, how horrible is that? Well, if you own property, you were paying taxes. I would think that those paying taxes ought to have more say than those that don't. You know, what's a shame is I walk around and I see people in society and I see people taking advantage of the system and I see people... Just, I don't even know how they function from time to time. I pay taxes. I'm a family man. I try to live as a good citizen. And their vote counts just as much as mine. Cancels mine out. Because we are a people that have turned from God. I don't blame them for that. I don't even blame the government for that. It's because we've turned away from God. So we can't put our hope in these things. We've got to put our hope in the kingdom. The kingdom that's coming is a theocracy. It's not a democracy. Our country wasn't founded as a democracy. It was founded as a constitutional republic with built-in safeguards to ensure that a mob couldn't take over this country and take everything away. But yet, that's what we see today. There's mobs on both sides of the political aisle, my friends. We don't need to align ourselves with either of those mobs. But it's a theocracy that's coming. Jesus Christ, the king of the whole earth. Israel, the chief nation of the earth. The seat of government will be the land of Israel. Both Israel, the church, and the tribulation saints will have governmental authority and help carry out this rule over the planet. We talked about the land of Israel, what it will look like in the millennium, very different from now. The entire land grant promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 will be realized. There will be an earthly city of Jerusalem, the capital city. That city will have a temple. We talked about the the millennial temple that Ezekiel, it was revealed to Ezekiel at the end of, uh, toward the end of his life in the days of captivity. And the last thing we talked about was the blood sacrifices that will take place in the millennium. There will be blood sacrifices, a daily morning sacrifice, no evening sacrifice, burnt meat, drink, sin, and peace offerings, and the trespass offerings. A lot of people can't handle that truth. Oh, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. There is no more sacrifice. That can't be literal. That must be talking about some symbol that was fulfilled a thousand years ago. How could there ever be blood sacrifices in the millennium? 
Well, the Bible says there will be, and the Bible tells us why. And that's the last thing we talked about. Why are there blood sacrifices in Christ's kingdom? Well, number one, it's Israel's discipline. Number two, it's for instruction about what truly is right and wrong, what truly is righteous and profane, something that Israel has never learned since the days of Mount Sinai, and it's for provision. It's the livelihood of a whole group of Levites and priests that will be doing the Lord's work. It's Israel's community service. You know, if you remember when God gave a law to Israel at Mount Sinai, Israel was very foolish. It wasn't God that said, you do this. It was Israel that said, everything the Lord tells us, we will do it. We'll do it. It's the same thing Israel did when they came back from the captivity. We'll make these covenants. We'll do it right this time. And in both cases, they never did. You don't tell God you're going to do something and he not hold you to it. He holds you to it. In the millennial kingdom, Israel will keep the law as she was supposed to. And why was she supposed to? Deuteronomy is very clear, not for personal righteousness. The law of God was never meant to make a man righteous. It never took away his sins. It pointed to the Messiah. It pointed to the faith of Abraham. It showed us our sin and our need for a Savior. But it was also to teach the nations. And it was to teach the nations. Israel, through the keeping of this law, would teach the nations that the God of Israel is the God of creation. That He is the true God. They were to teach the nations. It was their evangelism. And they never did it. So the millennium is a time when she will do what she promised she would. God keeps, holds her to her word. And she does. This is a time when these things happen. Israel is under community service, I would say. She's serving her sentence of community service. And therefore, there's a temple, there's blood sacrifices. And just as in the Old Testament, these things exist to teach the world. Now, we as the church, the bride of Christ, in our resurrection bodies, will have governmental authority. These things are taught by Jesus in his parable, particularly, I believe, over the Gentile nations. We talked about the millennium as Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest is very important to the Lord. I'm not talking about observing a bunch of rules and you can't flip on a light switch and you need to stop what you're doing at this time on Friday. I'm not talking about any of that. Israel perverted that. But Sabbath rest was important to God. Israel was to give the land rest. She refused to do it for all those years and she went into captivity for 70 years so the land could rest. The millennium is, is the Sabbath rest for this planet. 6,000 years, I believe, of toil since the fall. 1,000 years of rest. We talked about biblical chronology and how it relates and how we can't know the day or the hour, but the, the, the time of the world's toil is coming to an end. And we looked at chronology. Why we come to the conclusion, why, why people have come to the conclusion that the earth was created in 4004 B.C. And I showed you in the scriptures how we come to that. I talked about biblical chronology. It's trustworthy. It's trustworthy. We can trust it. We can know that we are in the latter times. We can know that though Jesus may not be at the door, he's in the hallway. These things are close. And we see the signs all around. Anybody read about the locust plagues that have descended upon East Africa this week? Watched any of those videos? I mean, these are the things, you know, earthquakes in diverse places, wars, rumors of wars. I mean, you know, he spoke pretty plain, but yet we've always got an answer about why that can't be what's happening. 
We looked at some Old Testament snapshots, what the Old Testament has to say. I knew a, a, a brother in Christ once, good brother, faithful preacher, loves to share the gospel. Good brother. We were talking about the millennial reign of Christ. And he says, how can you believe or base a doctrine upon a single passage of Scripture in the New Testament that talks about a thousand-year reign? He was referring to Revelation chapter 20. You know, how can you build a doctrine upon a single mention of a number? Well, well, friend, first of all, it doesn't mention it once. It mentions it six times. And all Revelation 20 does is give us a time period. The millennial kingdom is proclaimed throughout the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, details. And these details give us hope. And so we began to look at some of those things in the preceding weeks. I I hate to get caught up summarizing the past, but I've been gone a little bit and just trying to bring us back to place. Today, I want to look at, or at least get started, I want to look at three major passages from the Old Testament that talk about the millennial reign, the future reign of Messiah. Okay? These passages were written down by the prophets um, in times when Israel was in rebellion against God, when the days were dark, when there might be some question amongst the people about whether or not God would even keep His promise. These were written down in times much like we are in today in America. And they were written to give a distant, sure hope in times of trouble. That's why they were written. And they're written, therefore, for us. We need to take hope in the future that's already been written down. Not in the near future, but in the distant future. Because one day, all of these things that trouble us will be made right. All of the blood of the unborn that's been shed will be avenged. All of the liars that seem to escape justice won't escape it. There's a payday someday. And there's a payday for us. We don't escape. If your trust is not in Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the Bible, you can't escape either. And the evils of somebody else won't be an excuse for you in the day of judgment. Jesus Christ of the Bible... Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah of Israel, He's the only one that can save you to God, to this kingdom, but He's the only one that can save you from God and from the wrath that's coming. Keep that in mind. So Christ is the merit for our soul. We dare not be trusted in anything else and think we're any better than all of this corruption out here because apart from Christ, there go I. But I want to look at some Old Testament passages today and just kind of go through them verse verse by verse. I don't know how far we'll get. But think of it as an opportunity to be encouraged about what is to come. To forget about all this garbage around us right now and to think about what's coming. What's coming is much better. Much better than the best that MAGA could ever be. And I say that as somebody who appreciates A lot that's happened here in the last few years. But I'm afraid we're looking at the wrong source. I'm afraid we've been given an opportunity as the church to stand up and use an open door and to draw back to the Lord and to experience revival, and we haven't done it. So you think that the door that's been opened to us is going to stay open forever? If God's given us an opportunity and we don't take it, then it's going to slam shut. So I can't predict for you what's going to happen tomorrow, later today. 
And it concerns me that people are so sure, so sure about what's going to happen in November for this country. That's a danger sign. We can't know because there's a God that governs in the kingdoms of men. He puts people in power that he desires. And when a nation turns its back on God, both right and left, it can't even know its own way. All it can do is stumble in the darkness and turn upon itself. And that's what we're seeing today. The same alarm bells were raised by preachers in the 1850s, but nobody listened. Three major passages. Let's look at Isaiah. Isaiah 11 and 12. This is one of the premier passages in the Old Testament that talks about the future millennial reign of Messiah. This is a passage that the Jewish rabbis undoubtedly believe and teach is referring to the Messiah's kingdom. That doesn't mean just because a rabbi says it's, it's true. You know, I love and appreciate the people of Israel. I give my life to sharing the gospel with them, but I don't follow the rabbis. The rabbis are not rabbinic Judaism. is not biblical Judaism. It was birthed in the pit of hell, just like Roman Catholicism. It comes from the same father, the devil. I make no apology for that as, as, as either. But this passage is understood to be talking about the Messiah. No question. You won't get an argument from a Jewish person over that. Let's look at what it says. Isaiah 11 and 12. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, the father of King David, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. You see, the line of King David, the line to whom Messiah was promised in the Davidic covenant, seemed to die. It was just a stump. It was dying in the days of Isaiah. It appeared dead and the line appeared ended when Jehoiachin the king was taken captive to Babylon. And then the people came back 70 years later, there was no king. It appeared dead, a dead stump. But the Bible says out of this stump a rod will sprout. God will keep his promise. The line will sprout. That is the Messiah, a descendant of Jesse and of David. We know that Jesus was the legal descendant of David through Joseph. He was the genealogical descendant of David through Mary. Matthew and Luke make this clear. He held claim to the throne of David. He is that sprout. And it tells us in verses, the following verses, that the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon him. This is what's known as the sevenfold Spirit of God. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of the knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. The sevenfold Spirit of God would rest completely upon the Messiah. We see reference to this sevenfold Spirit of God in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation confirms this. We've talked about this long, long ago. Chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 5. John was immediately in the throne room of heaven. We have the church age. Revelation 2 and 3. The letters to the seven churches. Something that we as a church ought to be studying, but it's never preached on anymore. Even though it was written to us. The letters to the seven churches, the church age ends, and at the specific spot where it ends, what, what happens to John? He's raptured, and he's immediately in the throne room of God. And who does he see there? He sees the church. Thou hast redeemed us out of every tribe, tongue, and kindred. But in the midst of this, he sees a throne. 
And out of the throne proceeds lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. What are the seven spirits of God? What we have right here, Isaiah 11.2. The menorah, the seven-branched menorah in Jewish culture represents the burning light, the seven spirits of God. It also harkens back to the seven days of creation. The sevenfold fullness of the Spirit of God would rest upon Messiah. Revelation 5 goes on, you know, who can open the scroll? The scroll, the title deed of the earth. No one was worthy to open it, and John wept until the Lamb came forth. The Lamb, verse chapter 5, verse 6, and I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a Lamb as it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. The fullness of the Holy Spirit rests upon the Messiah. We're told in Zechariah 4.10, the reference is made also to this sevenfold spirit of God, and it's likened to eyes that run to and fro throughout the whole earth. When you read the Old Testament, it's the same triune God of the New Testament. When you read the Old Testament and you see the Lord, the Lord is God the Father. But look for the times you see the eyes of the Lord. What are the eyes of the Lord that run to and fro throughout the whole earth? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the eyes of the Lord. What is the arm of the Lord? It's the Messiah. So when you read the Old Testament, the arm of the Lord... It's the second person of the Trinity and the eyes of the Lord are the third person. There is no contradiction between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. You know, the Jewish rabbis try to say, you know, the Trinity is some, you know, these Christians worship three gods. And of course, most Jews believe that we Christians are all Catholics, which is very far from the truth. Catholic Jesus is not Jesus the Messiah of Israel. He's not. Catholic Jesus hadn't figured out how to get off that cross. But the Messiah of Israel cursed and hung on a tree in our place, rose up from the dead. And guess what? He was seen by more than 500 Jewish eyewitnesses. And entire Jewish communities changed and believed upon Him. And Jewish preachers and missionaries took it to the Gentiles. But this sevenfold Spirit of God rests upon the Messiah. The first five verses, I'm going to kind of summarize here. We see that under the rule of this Messiah, that law and life will exist under Him. He's able to discern and understand quickly. Justice moves quick, not slowly like here in America. The Bible speaks about how he will not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but judge according to truth. So under Messiah's rule that's coming to this world, there won't be bribery. There won't be corruption. There won't be high crimes and misdemeanors. It won't exist in his deep state, in his cabinet, because he will rule in righteousness. Righteousness, not just righteousness, this chapter tells us, but righteousness and faithfulness. That means he keeps his word, not because it benefits him, but because his word 
is important for the sake of truth. Verse 4 is interesting. In verse 4, you have a colon. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity. Equity means fairness, something we don't see in government today. For the meek of the earth, colon, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. A lot of times you need to pay attention to the punctuation marks in prophecies about the Messiah. I've talked about this before that the Old Testament prophets speak of the advents of Messiah together. They speak of the whole work and purpose of Messiah. And so his first advent and his second advent are often prophesied together. And many times a simple punctuation mark separates those. We've seen that in other places in Isaiah. Jesus himself showed this to be true when he stood up in the synagogue and he quoted a passage from Isaiah and said, today this prophecy is fulfilled in your ears. But he stops in the middle of the sentence. If you go back and read the prophet, he stops in the middle of the sentence because that first half is talking about his first coming. The second half, the days of the vengeance of God are his second coming and that wasn't fulfilled in that day. So here you have the two comings of Christ. Judging, reproving, fairness to the meek of the earth. Those are the things he showed and did through his miracles and his ministry here on the planet the first time. But when he comes the second time, he smites with the rod of his mouth. I used to have a bumper sticker on my RV when we, my wife and I would travel around America preaching the gospel. It said, Jesus Christ is coming back soon. And boy, is he mad. It's true. It's what the Bible teaches. In flaming fire, Paul says, taking vengeance on those that know not God. I'd be a liar to tell you otherwise. I would be a corrupter and a deceiver with the word of God to make you think otherwise. I'd hate you if I taught you otherwise. But yet so many preachers in the pulpits today, they don't want to tell you the truth about Christ's coming. They don't want to tell you that now are days of grace, but what are coming are days of wrath. And they don't love you enough to tell you to to repent and make make yourself ready. And Instead, they want to tell you suddenly that after all these millennia of history, God has changed his mind and suddenly it's okay to be gay. That's what they want to tell you. It's okay. Everybody's queer nowadays. And God's okay with it. We've got queer pastors. We've got presidential candidates who claim to be Christians who kiss their husband on national TV and want to lecture us on what the Bible says. And the people just cheer. And everything's just great. God just loves everybody. If I were to stand here and teach you that, I'd be a liar. I'd be a thief. I'd be a robber. I'd be a twister of God's word, just like Satan in the Garden of Eden. And I'd hate your guts to stand here and tell you that. I'd rather you hate me with the knowledge that I told you the truth than to tickle your ears. That, means, that doesn't mean I'm beyond falling prey to that. Without Christ, I can do nothing. But Man, everybody just wants to tell everybody what they want to hear. That's not the word of God. Love bids a warning doom to children who play in the freeway. But when Christ comes, He will rule with righteousness and faithfulness. If we go and look at verses 6 through 9, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fat lean together, and a little child shall lead them. What a precious picture. And the cow and the bear shall feed. 
Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. When has that ever existed in this world since the Garden of Eden? It hasn't. This is the future kingdom of Christ. And the suckling child, in other words, a little kid Michael's age, shall play on the hole of the asp. He'll play on the hole of a snake. And the weaned child, the one that's weaned from nursing, he can put his hand in a spider's nest, a cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We as the church were commissioned to take that gospel to the ends of the earth. There have been times when the church has been faithful. There have been times when we failed. The gospel has gone to the ends of the earth. The Jewish witnesses in the tribulation will complete that work, I believe. But there's coming a day when the, not just the message of the gospel will have covered the earth, but the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Those dwelling on this earth will know the truth. There will be no confusion. There will be no darkness. They will know the truth. And they will know the consequences of it. Accepting it. Here we're told that in God's holy mountain at this time, there will be no hurt, no destruction, no effects of the curse. The curse that came into this planet when Adam sinned. When we look at Micah chapter 4 and a couple of other places, and then we go on to look at Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. There is an earthly Jerusalem with a temple during the millennium. But there's also a heavenly Jerusalem that comes down, the home of the church, the bride of Christ, where there is no temple. And it's suspended above the mountains. It's suspended above the top of the earth. It will transcend the present creation into the new creation. In this holy mountain, as it stands suspended above the earth during the millennium, there will be no curse. There will be no dead. There will be no herbivores and carnivores. No carnivores, no meat-eating creatures. The conditions of the Garden of Eden will exist in God's holy mountain. And there'll be a testimony for a thousand years. The ox and the bear and the wolf and the lion can dwell together. Who knows, you know, you might be able to have a pet lion in one of your mansions there that Christ is preparing. Children will play with snakes and spiders and there'll be no hurt or destruction. And this testimony, this taste of the new earth will exist in the present earth for a thousand years as a hope of what's yet to come even after that. God's got a great plan that has many facets to be fulfilled. It's not just you die and float on a cloud and play a harp the rest of eternity. Verses 10 through 16, we go to see that during this time, the earth itself is at rest not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile. Rest from its toil. It says in verse 10, In that day there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for an ensign of the people. Not only will he stand for the nation of Israel, but to it, that ensign, shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. His kingdom is rest. It's Sabbath rest. The Bible tells us, the church, in Hebrews chapter 4, after it already tells us that we now, in Jesus the Messiah, 
in our relationship with him by grace through faith upon our repentance, we have spiritual rest. I don't have to observe a seventh-day Sabbath because Christ is my Sabbath rest. That doesn't mean I should be so self-centered that I'm so busy that I don't rest every week. I should be resting every week or I'm going to pay for it. So should you. Can you turn yourself off once a week? Can you literally turn yourself off? If we can't do that, we have a spiritual problem. I'm not talking about observing Old Testament law. That Old Testament Sabbath was between God and Israel. It was very clear. When, when Israelis that I witnessed to ask me if I keep Sabbath, I say, why would I? The Messiah is my Sabbath, number one. But secondly, I'm not Jewish and I'm not trying to be. But can we turn off and just relax and rest in the Lord? That's what we're called to do. But we have spiritual rest in Christ. The writer of Hebrews tells us we have that now. But it also tells us that in addition to that, there remains a rest that we haven't realized for the people of God. That's the kingdom that's coming. It's rest, my friends. Rest is coming. Not just in the grave, but in the kingdom that's coming. You know, there won't be any stresses of the American dream. <clears throat> there won't be the stresses of much that is American culture and the daily rush and chaos that we deal with in this day and time we live in. There won't be any of that. There'll be a regathering of the remnant or the outcast of Israel to their restored land. Verse 13 tells us no more rivalry between Israel and Judah. Verse 15, we get some specifics. The Nile River Delta, that great swampland of, of Egypt, even today, will be destroyed. There won't be any more river delta. There won't be any barrier to keep people from coming back. There will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria connecting the rest of the world just like it did in the days of the patriarchs when Abraham was able to come into the land. The great crossroads that the land of Canaan once was in ancient history will be again and there will be no man-made or natural barriers to keep people from coming back to the land of the Lord. Mobility. It will be a time of mobility. You know, I get to travel all over the world. I just got back from Columbia. I love to travel. But one of the blessings we have here in America that people don't enjoy around the world, and it's something we take for granted greatly, is our mobility. We have the ability to get in a car. I can drive to California tomorrow if I want to. There won't be police stopping me at every check post, searching me, asking me why I'm going. Now, if you get close to the Mexican border, you'll have some of that. But you don't, you don't get stopped. You don't get searched. You don't have to worry about a policeman coming up and claiming that you're breaking some law and then you've got to throw some dollars down to bribe him to get him to leave you alone. You don't have any of that. You don't have tolls every hundred yards taking your money. This is what happens in other countries. Eric and I and Mindy drove a, a 750-mile circuit around Columbia last month. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was an incredible time. It was a stressful time. I've driven all over the world in many countries, difficult places. But the Colombians asked me as I would talk to people in my travels, did you come over the Alto de la Renea, the, 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 the pass out of Boca? Well, yeah. Well, you know, if you drove over that, you can drive anywhere in the world now. And I'm starting to think, well, you, you know, you're right. That was nuts. That was insane. <laughs> and it was even worse. I had a little tiny four-cylinder Kia that could barely climb up the hill. And I'm trying to pass... 
giant trucks on a double yellow line in the fog on a curvy mountain road. And I had the precious cargo of a 10-month-old baby in the back seat. So the Lord was good. We, did, we crossed three high passes, nightmare. But it seemed like every few miles we'd get stopped for something. Construction, traffic, uh, what they called a pasaje where you have to stop and pay. And it wasn't 50 cents or 75 cents or a dollar like here. It was three, four, five, six dollars. I mean, I think we paid 75, 80 bucks in tolls just to drive around. A very small, really small in comparison to the whole country. And just police everywhere. We got stopped one time and he, he immediately saw that we were uh, Americans. And, oh, okay, you guys are free to go. We didn't get grilled like the locals. So... I guess that's that American privilege, or some would call it white privilege. I don't know, but uh, I was willing to answer his questions, but uh, he just looked at our faces and said, all right, you guys are gringos. You can go. Okay. Doesn't always work. Um, but uh, we have mobility here. We can travel where we want to travel. We don't get stopped. That's the mark of a free society. A government's not so paranoid. It's got to keep its citizens fenced in. We've taken that for granted here in America. And we could so easily lose it. But the kingdom of Messiah will be one of mobility. People traveling to the Jerusalem. People coming to the mountain of the Lord. Mobility. If we go to chapter 12, and again, I'm summarizing for lack of time. You know, some of you have read these already. In that day, this is one of the shorter chapters of the Bible, actually. In that day, thou, who is thou? It's Israel in context. We learn in chapter 12 that during that time of Messiah, Israel's testimony will be what it should have been in the beginning. It will be a testimony and a witness to the nations. They will have a millennial testimony. She will finally be and do what she as a nation was raised up by God to do. To teach the nations. In that day Israel will say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. This is a great verse here when you're afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. Isaiah 12, 2. That's a great verse when you're afraid. I've used it before. I've spoken it aloud in the darkness, lost in the woods, alone, thinking of things that cause fear. This has been a source of Strength for me, it can for you. And one day it'll be Israel's testimony for the nations. Therefore with joy shall you draw waters out of the wells of salvation. And in that day, in this kingdom, shall you say, Praise the Lord, call upon His name, declare His doings among the people. Make mention that His name is exalted. Those that have been saved by God don't have any problem making mention of His name. But so many who claim the name of Christ won't even mention or speak the name today. Sing unto the Lord, for He hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry aloud and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion. For great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. That'll be that millennial witness of the 
nation of Israel. Great is the Holy One of Israel who is here in the midst of us. He has redeemed us just like He promised. The law of God at Sinai was never meant to make men righteous. It was to teach, to show us our need for a Messiah. Many faithful in Israel's history understood that. David understood that. But the nation failed to do what it said it would do. They were the ones that said, God, we'll do what you say. You just tell us to do it. We will do it. They never did. Well, the day's coming where God will make sure they do. And that testimony will be a witness. So Isaiah 11 and 12 is a great passage that summarizes life in the millennium. Another passage we find is juxtaposed beside a passage that gets quote, quoted a lot at Christmas time. Micah chapter 4. You know, there's a greater context in the story of the wise men that came to Jerusalem and the scribes trying to look into the scriptures where Messiah should be born and they found the passage in Micah chapter 5 too and then Herod was very afraid and he wanted to try to stop this from coming to pass. Uh, there's a greater context there that involves Micah 4 and Micah 5. And the, 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 the Messiah that would be born in Bethlehem wouldn't just be born to reign. He would be born to reign and to destroy all the usurpers who've tried to reign in his place. So Herod had reason to fear. And it was greater than just a single verse in chapter 5. All scripture has a context. And it's important to look at those. And Micah 4 is part of that context. It's a nice chapter that talks about the millennial reign. There's also a reference to the two comings of Messiah. You know, the Jewish rabbis teach that Messiah only comes once. Well, uh, no, the prophets tell us different. In fact, Micah 4 is important because though chapter 5 tells us he'll be born in Bethlehem, chapter 4 tells us exactly where he was born in Bethlehem. And it wasn't a stable. It wasn't a cave. There's a reason why the shepherds who were told to go to Bethlehem by the angels, Bethlehem was a large village in that day, larger than it is now. And it wasn't a Palestinian village. It was Jewish. But they knew exactly where to go. They ran and immediately found the baby. Now, the, the angels didn't give them specifics. Go to Bethlehem and find him. And they found him quick. Why? Because these Levitical shepherds tending flocks, in the fields, daily sacrifices were offered every day, so the, she the sheep had to be out all year. They knew exactly where to go because they knew what the prophet said. The prophet tells us, but let's look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. We see that there is both a heavenly and an earthly Jerusalem. And that the former is suspended above the other which is grounded. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains. Not on the ground. And it shall be exalted above the hills. And people shall flow unto it. Now when we get to Revelation 21 we're going to see that's exactly what the new Jerusalem is. The bride of Christ. The mountain of the Lord's house. And many nations shall come and say come. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob and he will what? Teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So there's a Zion and there's a Jerusalem. The earthly Jerusalem, nine miles square, we've already talked about it, much larger than the present day. It's laid out in the prophet Ezekiel very clearly. The New Jerusalem. And it has a temple, a millennial temple. 
the, the new earthly Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the abode of the church during the millennium, the mountain of the Lord's house, it'll descend from heaven. John tells us in chapter 21, it's square. The length, the width, and the height are equal, and that each of these is 12,000 furlongs. A furlong is about an eighth of a mile. So we're talking about a, a city that's 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, and it's Height, the height of its highest building reaches 1,500 miles. So we're talking about something roughly the size of the distance between Miami, Florida and Boston, Massachusetts. And what's described there seems to me to be a giant pyramid that descends from heaven. It's the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. And it will be situated, suspended above the earth, above the new earthly Jerusalem and capital of Israel. And that the nations will flow into these capitals to learn about the Lord. We're told in verse 3, there will be peace on earth. And he, that is the Messiah, shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. So as a judge, he will rebuke nations. There will be nations that subsist into the millennium. And they, these will be nations that need to be rebuked. Zechariah 14, we're going to see there's punishment for rebellion. And this is all the while while Satan is bound. Proof that you can't blame the devil for what you do. You know, the devil's not even around, and yet men still have a seed of rebellion. We know that people are left after the battle of Armageddon. The scriptures talk about those that remain. Those are judged in Matthew 25, and they exist on and in. At that time, we, the church, will be in our glorified bodies without sin, ruling and reigning with Christ. But the Messiah will judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they will beat their swords into plowshares. It's funny how that verse has been quoted a lot throughout history as people try to make peace on earth. You know, they used to talk about World War I would be the war to end all wars. And this passage was quoted. We're going to beat our swords into plowshares. World War, World War I ended in 1918 was the treaty. And what happened 20 years later? World War II. What in the world to end all wars? There was no peace on earth. Because here's the folly. There can't be peace on earth without the Messiah. Can't be. It's impossible. We see that during this kingdom, what was promised in Luke 2 by the angel Gabriel to Mary is fulfilled. Peace on earth. Jesus never claimed to bring peace during his first coming. In fact, in Luke chapter 12, he said, I didn't come to bring peace on the earth. I came to bring a sword. And the message I come preaching is going to divide families. It's going to cause mothers and fathers to hate their children. And children to hate their parents. And a mother-in-law to hate her daughter-in-law. I came to bring division. But when he comes again, he brings peace. Peace through force. There will be peace on earth. Verse 4 is interesting. Flies in the face of what's so popular in America today, particularly on the left. But they, in this time of peace, shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And none shall make them afraid, for the Lord, the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. There will be private property in the millennium. Every man was, a man will sit under his own fig tree, 
his own vine, sit on his own property, and he doesn't have to worry about somebody coming and taking it from him. There will be moral capitalism. That's a big difference from the capitalism. I'm not talking about capitalism, the greed and the avarice and the selfishness and the futility of our economy today. Our economy is strong, but it's built upon a house of cards, my friends. You know, our money used to be backed by real wealth. The Bible defines real wealth as land, cattle, gold, and silver. Things that always have value regardless of what's happening in the world. But the money you have in your pocket and you, that, that, that shows up in your bank account is just a piece of paper. And one day you could wake up and that has no value. Ask the people of Venezuela about that. Ask the people of Zimbabwe. When we were down in Colombia... On the streets uh, in Bogota, we'd go down to this neighborhood to look for Israelis, hand out a few tracts or whatever. And there would be Venezuelans. This was, maybe this was more in Medellin, Eric. I can't remember. But there would be Venezuelans selling these uh, crafts. They were pretty fascinating that were made out of Venezuelan money. Like sculptures. You know, They knew how to fold the bills and attach them together. And it was made out of money, paper money that used to have value but it's absolutely worthless now. You don't think that could happen to our society? You know, I used to see, there was a time in Zimbabwe's history when people literally rolled wheelbarrows of cash to buy a loaf of bread. And they had to issue like trillion dollar bills in Zimbabwe because of the inflation. And eventually they just got rid of their money and started using American dollars. And those must have been American dollars that when the U.S. gets done with them, they must get shipped to another country. I went to Zimbabwe once, and I've seen some filthy money. They tell you never to put your hands on your, touch your mouth or your face after you've handled money. But our money here is clean compared to those dollars, those American dollars that we would buy things with in Zimbabwe. There was tons of $2 bills circulating, and they were filthy. I've never seen money that filthy. But uh, don't, don't handle money and touch your mouth, kids. It's, it's dirty. It's filthy. Uh, but our, our economy is based on a house of cards. And we can tout the economy and we can be happy. And some of us will vote based on economy and not morality. And shame on you if that's why you vote. But this economy is rooted on a house of cards. It collapse. And we know one day that the world economy will collapse. That will share in Antichrist. His spirit's alive and well today, but he's coming. So don't put your trust in the economy, but one day there'll be a moral capitalism. There will be private property, not socialism. Do you know there's only one difference between socialism and communism? You know, socialism's the big thing here in America today. And those that put their trust in it are making the same mistake that people have made time and time again in history. And once again, the only thing men ever learn from history is that men never learn from history. Socialism is instituted by vote. It's voted in. Communism is instituted by force. That's the only difference. So the, only, the difference is one is death by murder. The other is death by suicide. So if we want to usher socialism into this country, we're stupider than the Russians. We're killing ourselves. That's the only difference between socialism and communism. One is voted in by the people and one is forced upon the people with the sword. 
So socialism involves a dumber population. Death by suicide. I think, I forget who said it. It's a famous quote. You could never go broke betting on the, underestimating the stupidity of the American people. Absolutely true. That's why we can't know what's going to happen in this country in this next year. That's why we need to put our trust and faith in the side and declare him, make him famous, not a presidential candidate or a party. Private property. Verse 5 is interesting. In this time of the millennium when Christ rules over the world and the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord, all people will walk everyone in the name of his God. And we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Guess what will exist in the millennium? Liberty of conscience. A great Baptist distinctive. God never, ever, ever has been a beggar. He never, ever, ever, ever has been a dictator or a tyrant. Men are given the opportunity to believe upon Him. But He doesn't force Himself down people's throats. Never has, never will. I believe in divine providence. I believe in the doctrines of grace and God's sovereignty as taught in the Scriptures. But divine providence is very different biblically than the doctrine of faith. And what's pronounced around this country by so-called reformers a lot isn't a biblical doctrine of divine providence. It's a doctrine, of, a man-made doctrine of faith, fatalism. And it presents God as if he's a tyrant. He's not. And he won't be in the millennium. Men will walk in the name of their God. And yet truth will be there for those interested. Liberty of conscience, freedom of religion with Israel as a witness to the truth in which the, with the church as executing Gentile authority over the Gentiles. There won't be any thought police in Messiah's kingdom. There won't be anyone telling somebody how to think. There will be truth and men will be allowed or we'll be responsible for what they do with that truth. When Satan is loosed from prison, we're going to see in verse 7, he doesn't have to work very hard to find a whole group of people that want to overthrow the reign and rule of this righteous king. And what does that demonstrate? It demonstrates what was demonstrated all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Now think of what David wrote in Psalm 39.5. Man at his best state... Man in his absolute best state is altogether vanity. Whether he be in innocence in the Garden of Eden, whether he be governed by his conscience, as in the days of the flood, or under human government instituted by God, whether he be under the law of Sinai when God came and met with Israel face to face, whether it be under the prophets or under the grace of God through Jesus Christ, or under the scepter and rule of Messiah himself, man, when left to himself, will fail. We need a Messiah. That's what we need. There won't be any thought police. God's not a beggar. He's not a dictator or a tyrant. Verse 7, The Lord will reign over Israel in Mount Zion forever. That means the mountain of the Lord's house transcends into the new heaven and the new earth. This present earth will be destroyed at the end of the millennium. God will create a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And that new Jerusalem and that reign of God will transcend with the church and with the people of Israel living at that time, faithful to the Lord, into the new creation. 
Verse 8 is interesting. I'm probably not going to get to Zechariah 14 today, but let me just finish this up. Verse 8 is an interesting passage. And thou, O tower of the flock, and stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come. Well, what's he been talking about? He's been talking about the kingdom. Unto the tower of the flock, and that, we know what that means because in Hebrew, it's the exact same words that appear in the story of Jacob when Rachel dies and he buries her at the tower of Adar, just past the tower of Adar, which is Bethlehem. The tower of the flock is the tower of Adar in Hebrew. Rachel was buried there and we're told that at this tower, this ancient watchtower that was used, that the, that the kingdom would come. What kingdom? The first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Here we have the two comings of Messiah. Here we have Old Testament proof that there is a first coming and a second coming. The prophet says, unto the tower of the flock, it will come even the first dominion, semi, semicolon, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of the Jerusalem. The first dominion comes to the tower of the flock, the tower of Adar there in Bethlehem where the Levitical priests used to inspect the lambs for daily sacrifice to make sure they were spotless. And what did they use to hold those lambs down to inspect them? None other than swaddling bands, swaddling clothes that would have been found there for Jesus to be wrapped in. The second dominion comes to the daughter of Jerusalem. Christ came once to Bethlehem, born in a tower, not in a stable. The very tower where the sacrificial lambs were inspected by the shepherds. He was born there. The shepherds came and inspected him and found him to be spotless. But the second dominion, it's all one kingdom. Make no mistake, God doesn't separate between the first and second advents. It's all one. Because it's all been purposed by God. And he, uh, he does what he says he's going to do. The second dominion comes to the daughter of Jerusalem. It's all woven together here. Jerusalem, however, verses 9 through 11, the people of Israel, however, were, are now captive. They're a persecuted people. Persecuted, driven out as a nation. Verse 11 in chapter 4 says, now also many nations are gathered against thee that say, let her be defiled and let her eye look upon Zion. This is the tribulation period where Satan will try to wipe Israel from the face of the map. Church won't be here. There's a big difference between the wrath, the, the wrath of the devil and evil men, the tribulation that comes from the devil and evil men that we suffer today, that some Christians suffer horribly today. There's a difference between that and the wrath of God. We don't suffer the wrath of God because of Jesus Christ. And that period of time that's coming to the earth, Daniel's 70th week is a time of wrath to judge the world and to wake up the people of Israel. She will be captive. She'll be carried away. She'll be defiled. All nations will be gathered against her. That's the situation now. But... Verses 12 through 13, in the kingdom that's coming, her that is reviled will be in charge. The people of Messiah will be in charge. The last two verses of the chapter speak of Israel, the center of the millennial government. God making her 
fulfilling in her the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, Paul talks about his desire that all Israel would be saved in Romans chapter 9 through 11. He speaks about how though Israel is an enemy of the gospel, she's beloved by the Father's sake. We ought to have a desire to see the people of Israel saved. That's why I labor to share the gospel. Um, But one day... When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, all Israel living at that time will wake up. Hosea tells us that Jesus himself can't come back. Hosea 5, the Messiah says, I will come or I will go, and then I'm going to go back to where I came from until my people acknowledge their crime, until they acknowledge their great offense. I'm going to come, I'm going to show myself, and then I'm going to go back, and I'm going to stay there until they wake up. What does Zechariah tells us? When he returns, who is it that looks upon him? It's the ones that call for him, the ones that pierce him. You see, Jesus Christ, his second coming, will not and cannot occur until Israel calls for him to come and rule. But yet we, the church, are told to be ready at any moment. Our Lord could come at any moment. The Bible tells us that there is a period of, of seven years that must transpire, Daniel's 70 a week, and that only after that will the Messiah come, but we're told to be ready at any moment. Are you ready now? We're not told the day or the hour for Christ to come for His church. The inevitability of Christ coming for His church necessitates a catching away that Paul speaks of in Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. That's what we should be looking for. We shouldn't be overly concerned with the things and the injustice we see. We ought to cry out against it. We ought to speak out against it. We ought to be able, willing to suffer now for truth and righteousness and for the little unborn babies. But realize our hope isn't in laws being changed here. It's in the Messiah coming for His church and then one day coming back with His saints to take over and make it right. At best, what we can have in America at best is a revival before the onslaught of God's judgment. God's known to do that. He did that in Israel. One of the great revivals in the kingdom of Judah was just before the Babylonian captivity under Josiah the king who died at a very young age. And you think how unfair. What's not unfair if your hope is in the Messiah? And like Abraham, you're not looking for a city built by men, but one built by God. God's done it before. Even during the horrible days of the Civil War here in America, brother against brother, black against white, you realize there were a whole lot of blacks in the gray. Lincoln County, North Carolina had a large regiment of free black troops that volunteered their service for the Confederate Army. There were Union troops that came into southern states and horribly harassed and murdered blacks and whites. Don't believe everything you've been told. But in the midst of all that chaos, what the newspapers and history books won't tell you is there was a great revival amongst the whites and the blacks. Over 100,000 men in the Confederate armies gave their hearts to Christ. There were people taking Bibles throughout the armies making sure that the the, the slaves were were hearing the gospel and people were getting saved. And even in the midst of all that chaos, God did a work. So He can do it now. He's done it before. Maybe we should pray for that. 
But our hope is not in things changing for the better apart from the coming kingdom of Messiah. And we need to be ready for him to come and take us home and to affect these changes that have been promised. If you go on to read into chapter 5, this Messiah that's promised is the judge of Israel who will be smitten upon the cheek with a rod. What did they do to Jesus when he was brought before the high priest and Pilate? They smote him on the cheek. The one that came for Israel was smitten by him, yet he would be born in Bethlehem, verse 2. And the one that would be born in Bethlehem wasn't a mere man. He that is to be ruler in Israel has goings forth from old, from everlasting. This is God in human flesh. I don't understand why the rabbis can't see that. It's right there in their scriptures. But you can't understand God's word unless he gives you understanding. And then it says in verse 5 that this judge of Israel who they will smite upon the cheek who will be born in Bethlehem who's everlasting is going to give up his people for a time. Therefore will he give them up until the time which she travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. There will be a future restoration of the people of Israel. Charles Spurgeon used to preach about this a lot. John Owen, the great uh, Puritan preacher that all the Reformed replacement theologians like to talk about. He preached about the future restoration and salvation of Israel. People need to get their history right before they start claiming people. Go read what these people wrote instead of what somebody told you they said. That's a great problem with us here in America. We just believe everything we've been told. But all of these things have been laid out. And the proof that we can trust them is that they were fulfilled literally when Christ came the first time. Everything the Bible says about His first coming was fulfilled literally into a T. Therefore, we can believe all of these things about the future will be the same. This ought to be hope for us. So Isaiah 11 and 12, Michael 4, uh, Michael 4 are, are passages that give us a lot of details about the millennium. We're going to see next time Zechariah 14. That's uh, an incredible chapter. Um, and it's really incredible when you consider the context in which it was written. We often don't, when we read the prophets, we don't think about when they prophesied and what was going on in Israel at that time. And when we study the scripture in its historical context, you know, a light switch can flip on. How many of you guys have ever read the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther? That was after Israel came back from captivity. We like to read about Ezra preaching in the streets from his pulpit of wood. You know, our pulpits that we have in our Baptist churches harken back to the pulpit of wood. He stood and read before the people. We like to read about Nehemiah and the walls being rebuilt and the temple being rebuilt. But we don't equate those books with the prophetic books that were written at the same time. Did you know that during that period... God sent the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to the people, not because they were rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the walls, but because they were screwing around and not doing what God sent them back to do. That was a time when the people of Israel screwed around, just like the church today, and were disobedient to God. And He sent the prophets to rebuke them and say, Consider your ways. That's what we must do in the church today. Consider your ways. 
Because I don't care how great things are in America. The problem with the American church is that we are screwing around. And that's why babies are slaughtered in our streets. That's why sodomites are lifted up on a stage and can kiss their husbands in front of the American people. And we think it's okay because we've screwed around with God's word. Why don't, and that's what the prophets basically came to Israel to say. It took them years to rebuild that temple and to build those walls. In fact, when you look at the historical context, Ezra and Nehemiah died very, very, very old men, well over 100 years old. And were just sick and tired of the same old, same old, same old. It's a perfect picture of the church. And yet Zechariah was written in the context of that because there was a small faithful remnant that didn't screw around, that wanted to do what's right. And this prophecy was given to them. And Haggai tells us that God made note of the specific ones that listened to the prophets, that wrote them down and talked about these things. And he made a note of it. And one day these, in that day, when everybody else was screwing around, cared about the things of God, one day they'd be jewels in his kingdom and they'd have a special place of authority. So there's a great context here. So if you ever get back to reading Ezra and Nehemiah, it's interesting the chronology there and it's interesting the theme. The theme is not walls being rebuilt. It's a people that was told to do something. They were given the means to do it. I mean, the king of Persia showered them with riches. The people of the land that were left behind had been prospered and showered them with the money and the, 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 the resources, and yet they screwed around. They just messed around. And I'm not talking a couple years. I'm talking decades. So all of these prophets have a context, and it's interesting to follow that out. And they speak to us as they're supposed to. Remember how Paul said that the Old Testament is written for our admonition to warn us? And it's written for our learning and our comfort. And we would have the answer to every problem in our church and in our society if we just learn from the example of the people of Israel. If we just learn from history. But we won't. And we never will. We need the Messiah. We need Jesus. And he's coming. So we'll look at Zechariah 14. I've been reading. I've been trying to finish the entire Bible in Spanish. I've read the entire New Testament And I just finished the book of Nehemiah, so I'm in the book of Esther now. And that's why all these things are fresh on my mind. But I'll set a little context for that next week. The Jews are getting ready to celebrate Purim in Israel. It always falls, I think, in March. And Purim uh, celebrates the deliverance through God's providence of the people of Israel in the days of Esther. And in fact, the king that Esther married is the same Persian king that uh, was involved in searching the records to make sure that Cyrus had given this decree and then the people weren't building the temple like they were supposed to and he gave them permission to start the project back up with the prophets there telling the people to stop screwing around and do what you said you are going to do. So maybe that's a message for us. We'll get into that. There's a few other passages uh, from the Old Testament that share some interesting details. Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Haggai. And hopefully in these things we can be encouraged. And then maybe, just maybe, before I go on the road next month, we can get into chapter 20, verse 7. We've been camped out with those two verses for a long time. So I hope you were blessed today. Um, Again, I don't claim to have all the answers, but I believe this book does. 
And I believe every word of it. And I challenge you to study it for yourself. To test the things you've heard from the pulpit to make sure they're true. And uh, to know and to understand that what we preach is not religion. It's salvation for any, whosoever will come. You see, God's not religious. Religion is racist. Religion is self-serving. Religion is greedy. And that's not the God of the Bible. You You go back and study the Old Testament when Israel was carried captive. And the Babylonians came and sacked the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. God had told the people, submit yourselves to the king of Babylon and I will prosper you. And Jeremiah told the king to his face that's what would happen. But the king didn't believe it. He tried to escape. And the last thing he saw on this earth was his children murdered before his eyes. And then Nebuchadnezzar had his eyes cut out, drug him to Babylon. Most of the people that stayed in the city refused to leave and were slaughtered. But there was one man wasn't a Jew, and he certainly wasn't a white man. He was a black man from Ethiopia. He was a eunuch. And the eunuch, who had no power, no authority, was just a servant in someone's house. When he heard these words of Jeremiah, he humbled himself and feared God. And God sent the prophet to that black man, to that eunuch. Obed-Edom, I believe was his name, and said, Don't you worry. I'll take care of you. You, feel, you. you humbled yourself before the word of the Lord. So don't worry. All these people are going to be captive and, and taken captive, but I will take care of you. And he survived and was, was covered by the grace of God. That is not a message of religion. And the great testimony of the church is not that we're one people in one culture, but that we're Jews and Gentiles together who believe on Messiah. Many, many colors, many cultures. That ought to be a witness and it never has been. That's a shame too. No, whole other story. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is for whosoever, both Jew and Gentile. The Bible tells us that if we'll repent of our sins, it, that means to acknowledge our sin. In all thy ways, the Proverbs say, acknowledge him. That includes our sin. Acknowledge our sin before God and believe upon his Messiah. Jesus Christ was crucified He was buried. He rose from the dead. As the prophets foretold, he will come again to rule and reign. To acknowledge our sin and to put our trust in that is salvation. And it's a free gift if we receive it by grace through faith. That is the gospel. All of this is the gospel. God's plan and purpose accomplished throughout the ages on down to the end of time. Will you be a part of it? One way or another, you will. But will you be a part of it for good? You can by grace through faith. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for your gospel. To all, Lord, who will believe that you've had a remnant not just amongst the Jews, but amongst the Gentiles of all nations throughout history. You've kept your word. It's a great thing. And we thank you for that. We thank you that uh, there is hope in the distant things that have been foretold in detail. Lord, that we can one day look for a kingdom where there will be righteousness and peace and equity in the things we long for even in our own country. We pray, Lord, you would hasten that day. We pray that you would hasten these things. Bring them to pass, Lord. That you would come for your church. That you would prepare us to to serve alongside you in your kingdom. 
Lord, if, if that day be not today, give us strength to abide in these days of darkness, to be a witness, to love those that no one else will love, to love them with the truth, Lord, to stand together, to refuse to compromise, to speak out for the suffering, for the slaughtered, and for those who have no voice, and to even be willing to give our lives to do so. So, Lord, we humble ourselves before you this day. We humble ourselves before your word. And I just pray that you do a work in the heart of each and every person in this room, myself included. Bless the food we're about to eat and our fellowship. We're thankful that in the fellowship of the bride and the body of Christ, that uh, there is escape from the things of this world. That's something they can't take from us. And uh, we praise you for that. So, Lord, uh, in all our ways... We acknowledge you, and we look to you to direct our paths. Thank you for Jesus, Jesus the Messiah. Come quickly, Maranatha, O Lord. Amen.